Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today I'd like to welcome a new member to the Legends of Surgery podcast team, Simra Bajaj, who is a student at Harvard University studying the history of science on the medicine and society track. He's been working behind the scenes doing research and has written this episode on the history of the mitral valve, from its discovery to the history of surgically relieving mitral stenosis and regurgitation. So let's open up this episode of Legends of Surgery. Just a quick housekeeping note before we get things rolling. This is going to be a fairly lengthy episode, and there's a pretty nice split about halfway through between stenosis and regurgitation, where if you choose, you can break this up into uh, two episodes. Otherwise, you can continue to listen to the whole thing. All right. Now, before we dive into the history of the mitral valve, let's quickly review the anatomy and physiology of this valve to situate the history within the medicine. As you may already know, there are four valves in the heart the aortic, pulmonary, tricuspid, and mitral valves. The first two are known as the semilunar valves. As the prefix semi and word lunar suggest, semilunar means half moon. Indeed, both the pulmonary and aortic valves are made of crescent moon-shaped leaflets. They open to allow blood to be pumped to the lungs and the rest of the body, respectively, and close to prevent backward blood flow into the heart. The next two are the atrioventricular valves, named because they sit between the heart's atria and ventricles, and are known as the tricuspid and mitral valves. These valves open to allow the ventricles to fill with blood and close to prevent backflow from the ventricles back to the atria. The mitral valve sits at that crucial junction between the left atrium and the left ventricle. One other note about valve anatomy. The place where the leaflets of a valve come in contact with each other, the junction, is called the commissure. This will come up later. An interesting bit of trivia, the word commissure comes from the Latin commissura, meaning joint, juncture, or seam. Makes sense. But what makes the mitral valve so unique? For one, the mitral valve consists of only two leaflets, the anterior and posterior leaflets, compared to all the other valves three. That is why the mitral valve is sometimes called the bicuspid valve. The mitral valve actually gets its name from Renaissance physician Andreas Vesalius in his 1543 De Humani Corporis Fabrica, one of the most influential anatomy books ever written and the subject of podcast 81. Vesalius named the valve after the mitre, a religious headgear worn by bishops of various Christian denominations. Both the mitre and the mitral valve consist of angled flaps held together by a circular band. In the case of the mitral valve, that band is a ring of tissue called the annulus, meaning ring-shaped, and is the diminutive version of the Latin word anus, meaning ring. And yes, that is also where we get the medical term anus. But that is far from where we are focused today, both literally and figuratively. Now specifically, the mitral annulus is a saddle-shaped structure that supports the valve's leaflets. The chordae tendinae, or heart strings, similarly hold the mitral valve in place and connect the leaflets to the papillary muscles. But hopefully no one is tugging on them. When the chordae relax, the valve opens up. When they tense up, the valve closes. As the mitral valve controls blood flow into the left ventricle, the chamber of the heart that pumps blood to the entire body, stenosis, meaning a narrowing of the valve, or regurgitation, which is a widening of the valve, can be serious problems. But more on that to come. For now, let's travel back through history to understand how the mitral valve was discovered and understood over time. Our story begins with the ancient Greek physician Aristostratus who lived between 310 and 250 BCE. He's credited with discovering the four valves of the heart and that valves were meant to allow blood flow in only one direction. On top of that, Aristostratus determined the heart to be the source of arterial and venous circulations, correctly suggesting how two valves allowed the influx of blood into the heart and two valves allowed the outflow of blood from the heart. However, Aristostratus also believed that in a healthy person, Arteries contained only air. Artery, air. They sound kind of similar, right? In fact, the word artery comes from two Greek words meaning air and to keep. Now, how did early anatomists come to the conclusion that arteries carried air rather than blood? It is thought that this was due to arteries collapsing and appearing empty in cadavers. Next in the history of the mitral valve comes fellow Greek physician Galen. Galen actually conducted an experiment to test 
Arasistratus's hypothesis that arteries contained only air. He placed two ligatures, or suture ties, on an artery, cut the vessel between them, and saw only blood come out and not air. But more relevant to this episode, Galen described the two leaflets of the mitral valve and the three leaflets of the tricuspid valve, comparing these leaflets to arrowheads. However, Galen dismissed the function of the mitral valve, claiming it to be weak and insufficient because of its comparative shortage of leaflets. With the fall of the Roman Empire came the Dark Ages, and as a result, the history of the mitral valve and medicine more generally stalled for about a millennia after Galen, at least in Europe. During this time, the church controlled scholarly discourse, and the church was more focused on preserving Galenic knowledge than experimenting and testing new hypotheses. In any case, the Dark Ages eventually gave way to the Renaissance and a period of exponential learning. In Italy, humanist Leonardo da Vinci built wax models of heart valves, describing how the atrioventricular valves opened and closed with the cordae tendini and papillary muscles. Da Vinci is perhaps best known for his painting of the Mona Lisa, but he also was the first to accurately draw heart valves, depicting the H-shaped surface of the mitral valve when viewed from above. Italian surgeon Rialdo Colombo further elucidated the physiology of the mitral valve. He was a student of Vesalius, who you may remember named the mitral valve, and is currently best known for his work describing pulmonary circulation, inspiring the famous William Harvey. In 1559, Colombo described how the two atrioventricular valves allow the heart to fill with blood during diastole, demonstrating the depth of physiological knowledge regarding the mitral valve at this time. Now that we've briefly covered the history of the discovery and understanding of the function of the mitral valve, let's delve into the history of this valve's two major pathologies, stenosis and regurgitation. Mitral stenosis was first described in 1668 by John Mayo, a chemist and physiologist at the University of Oxford. Dr. Mayo actually never received a medical doctorate, instead earning a doctorate of civil law in 1670, two years after describing mitral stenosis. He described a patient who suffered from palpitations, an irregular fluttering heartbeat, and dyspnea, or shortness of breath. On autopsy, Mayo discovered, quote, the vein, where it opens into the left ventricle of the heart, was nearly closed by cartilage adhering to its interior, so that blood could scarcely enter the ventricle, end quote. Mayo was describing mitral stenosis, as French physician Raymond Vissunes would describe more fully in 1715 as the, quote, bony transformation of the mitral valve, end quote, based on more postmortem studies. On the other hand, regurgitation was a concept appreciated as early as Erasistratus with the idea of unidirectional blood flow. But mitral regurgitation itself was only first described by French physician Jean-Baptiste de Senac in 1749. He distinguished between mitral regurgitation and mitral stenosis, while also writing about how both cause similar symptoms such as dyspnea and atrial dilation. So let's focus now on mitral stenosis, which was recognized clinically by Jean-Nicolas Corvissart. Corvissart is a rather interesting figure and deserves a slight detour. Born in the French village of Drycourt in 1755, Corvissart was steered towards a career in law by his father, who was an attorney for the French parliament. Corvissart did not take much interest in his studies of the law and is often described as a mediocre student who liked to play hooky whenever possible. In one of those instances, he stumbled into the lecture hall of anatomy professor Antoine Petit and fell in love with the science, probably turning his career towards medicine. Like with many other figures in the history of medicine, serendipity was key. Without the money to go into medicine and kicked out of the family home, Corvissart worked as a nurse to pay his way through medical school at the famed Hotel Dieu, where he received board and lodging also as payment. Corvissart's humble nature also explained why he did not get his first job at the Hôpital Necker. The French finance minister's wife, Madame Necker, rejected his application because Corvissart refused to wear a powdered wig, which was the fashion of physicians at the time. However, Corvissart did get a job treating the indigent of Saint-Sulpice and, towards the end of the French Revolution in 1797, landed at Collège de France as the chair of medicine. His students at the Collège de France were an impressive lot and included Xavier Bichat, sometimes called the father of histology, René Lenac, the inventor of the stethoscope who we covered earlier, 
and Guillaume Dubitrin, who you may remember from Podcast 91. Corvisart even became the personal physician to Napoleon Bonaparte, who made Corvisart the physician to the government. As a result, Corvisart was in a position to make meaningful health policy reforms, such as requiring medical practitioners to carry a license. Of Corvisart, Napoleon said, quote, I don't believe in medicine, but I believe in Corvisart, end quote. Quite the compliment for one of history's greatest conquerors. A Corvisart also is known for bringing the physical exam technique of percussion out of obscurity and into modern practice. For those that didn't have the pleasure of practicing this technique on just about any object you could think of during medical school, it involves tapping on a patient's body to elicit a sound, a very useful method of determining if a space is filled with air, giving a hollow sound, or something solid, causing a dull tap. Corvisart translated a pamphlet written in 1761 by a little-known Austrian physician named Leopold Owenbrugger entitled Inventum Novum Ex Percussione Thoracus Humani Interni Pectoris Marbos Detegendi, or, for those whose Latin is a bit rusty, a new discovery that enables the physician from the percussion of the human thorax to detect the diseases hidden within the chest. The Latin has a nicer ring to it. Corvisart brought this technique back into popularity when he translated Owen Brugger's book in 1808 into French. But most relevant to this episode, Corvisart was the first to describe the palpable precordial thrill associated with mitral stenosis. Here is how he described it, quote, There is a certain thrill, or to use the French term, bruisement, difficult to describe, perceptible when the hand is applied to the precordial region, precordial means in front of the heart, a thrill which comes without doubt from the difficulty which the blood finds in passing through an orifice which is not large enough for the quantity of blood which it is supposed to let pass, end quote. Just a note of clarification, a thrill means a vibration which can be felt with the hand. It was due to his practice of examining living patients with mitral stenosis and then performing autopsies on them that allowed Corvisart to understand the cause of the thrill. He also identified clinical signs of stenosis such as dyspnea, palpitations, and an irregular pulse. English physician Alan Burns recognized the thrill of mitral stenosis independently of Corvisart in 1809, probably because of the Napoleonic Wars prohibiting scientific communication between the UK and France. This should serve as a reminder of how medical history is intertwined in the broader history of society. But in any case, Burns described the physical exam findings as an, quote, unusual palpitation, jarring sensation, and a hissing noise, end quote. But he attributed these signs to mitral regurgitation instead. Burns thought that the jarring and hissing must be coming from a column of blood going from the atrium to the ventricle, crashing into a regurgitant column of blood going the opposite way. Knowledge of the difference between systolic and diastolic murmurs was beyond Burns' time. Let's fast forward and focus on the surgical treatment of the mitral valve because this is a history of surgery podcast after all. Now enter Sir Thomas Brunton. Born in Scotland in 1844, Brunton earned his MD from the University of Edinburgh, where he did important research on the use of the first known vasodilator, amyl nitrate, to treat angina pectoris, or chest pain, publishing the work in 1867. Working as a house physician at the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, he witnessed the distress of patients with angina, and aware of the works of Sir Benjamin Ward Richardson, an English anesthesiologist who had described the peculiar properties of the drug, Brunton tried the treatment for angina. He actually thought, incorrectly, that angina was primarily associated with elevated blood pressure, but the results were remarkable. After five to ten drops administered on a cloth, the patient's pain was relieved within 30 to 60 seconds. One of the most famous physicians of his time, Queen Victoria dubbed him a knight, but his reputation suffered from his revolutionary and controversial suggestion that surgery could be used to treat mitral stenosis. Brunton was not the first to suggest surgical treatment of mitral stenosis. That credit goes to British physician Daniel Samways, who anticipated that, quote, the severest cases of mitral stenosis will be relieved by slightly notching the mitral orifice, end quote. Still, Brunton was the first to truly describe the idea of mitral valve surgery and to get people to seriously talk about the possibility with his 1902 paper, quote, preliminary note on the possibility of treating mitral stenosis by surgical methods, end quote. The title itself describes how measured Brunton was in his assessment, but 
As you may know, surgeons back then were often conservative and suspicious of new ideas. Brunton examined patients with mitral stenosis postmortem and saw that he could surgically open up the valve, which begged the question, could the same be done in a living patient? After all, mitral stenosis is a terrible cardiac disorder that, in its severest form, medicine could do nothing for. So perhaps surgery could provide some relief to these patients. He described a potential surgical technique, discussing how the mitral orifice should be enlarged by elongating the natural opening and how the valve should be accessed through the ventricle. Now the second point would not prove to be the favored point of entry, but it is worth noting that Brunton also acknowledged accessing the valve through the atrium. Overall, Brunton recognized that his suggested operation was dangerous and called for surgeons to carry out their own experimentation before going forward. However, he was inspired by the positive results coming from the surgical treatment of cardiac wounds, some of the first successful cardiac surgery, and thought the same could be achieved for mitral stenosis. Regardless, the Lancet, the journal where his 1902 paper was published, put forth an editorial viciously attacking his lack of experimentation and his suggestion that what could be done in death could also be done in life. More generally, critics claimed the procedure would not benefit the patient, as it was believed that cardiac symptoms arose from the damaged heart muscle and not the stenosed valve. Rather than encouraged for the idea and the potential for surgical advancement by his colleagues, Brunton was warned not to encourage others to follow this dangerous path. Regardless, the damage was done because, no matter how condemned, the idea of mitral valve surgery entered the collective surgical consciousness. In fact, Nobel Prize-winning surgeon Alexis Carell, who was covered in Podcast 20, and the famous neurosurgeon Harvey Cushing from Episodes 42 and 43, both worked on researching mitral stenosis with animal models, offering potential surgical techniques. And while also the father of neurosurgery, Harvey Cushing was interested in mitral stenosis. As the chairman of surgery at Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, now Brigham and Women's Hospital, Cushing saw his first surgical resident, Elliot Cutler, perform the first successful surgical treatment of mitral stenosis. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Elliot Cutler was born in 1888 in Maine to a lumber merchant, but his family moved to Massachusetts shortly after Cutler's birth. He would go on to Harvard University and, subsequently, Harvard Medical School, where he graduated first in his class. As was quite common at the time, Cutler went to Europe to study, spending significant time studying pathology at the University of Heidelberg in Germany, before returning to the States as an intern working under Harvey Cushing. However, Cutler would soon return to Europe, this time as a soldier serving with the Harvard unit during World War I, and he gained a broad surgical experience given the intensity of trench warfare. Cutler came back to the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital as a resident surgeon this time and was appointed as a surgical associate in 1921. Spending three years in the lab, Cutler worked with cardiologist Samuel Levine not only to determine how to mechanically treat mitral stenosis, but also to become familiar with the hemodynamics of the heart, how to access the thoracic cavity, and more that would come in very handy. In 1923, a young girl came to Peter Bent Brigham Hospital with terminally severe mitral stenosis. She had been bedridden for the past eight months and presented Cutler with the opportunity to carry out this experimental surgery. On May 20th, a tenotomy knife, commonly used in neurosurgery, hat tip to Harvey Cushing there, was inserted into the apex of the heart through the ventricle as Brunton had described. Cutler performed a blind mitral commissarotomy, pushing the knife upwards to what he thought was the mitral valve and cutting the commissures, remember where the anterior and posterior leaflets come together, despite much resistance and not actually seeing what he was cutting. The 75-minute surgery was followed by a challenging post-operative course that involved cardiac tamponade, which is where the sac around the heart fills with blood so the heart can't beat, and the benefit to Cutler's patient was minimal at best. Side note, tamponade comes from the French verb tamponner, meaning to plug up. Amazingly, I never made the connection with the sanitary product tampon, but they come from the same root word. Nonetheless, simply successfully operating on the mitral valve led Cushing to declare that, quote, We are on the eve of a new surgical specialty of great promise, a specialty dealing with chronic diseases of the heart, end quote. 
In his paper describing the operation, Cutler declared that their experience showed that, quote, surgical intervention in cases of mitral stenosis bears no special risk and should give us further courage and support in our desire to alleviate a chronic condition, end quote. Following his success, the patient survived for four and a half years after the operation, dying of pneumonia, Cutler finished developing a tool called the cardiac valvulotome, which punched out a small section of the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve to relieve stenosis. After two failed operations using the tenotomy knife, Cutler used the cardiac valvulotome for ensuing operations, but these patients also died within days due to severe mitral regurgitation. Of the 10 patients in the entire world who had surgery for mitral stenosis between 1923 and 1928, seven of whom were operated on by Cutler, only one was surviving in 1929, a patient treated by surgeon Henry Souter across the pond in England. Sautar is one of those figures who was never adequately recognized by his contemporaries because they failed to understand the significance of his work. Annotating a copy of Cutler's article describing mitral stenosis, Sautar scribbled in the margins, why, when Cutler discussed punching out a portion of the mitral valve, and wrote about how an atrial approach to mitral stenosis would have avoided the intense bleeding Cutler faced by going through the thicker muscle of the ventricle. Sautar had all the right answers, but he was also devising a novel surgical technique in a world hostile to surgical intervention of heart valves. Nonetheless, Sautar persisted, operating in 1925, on a 15-year-old girl whose mitral stenosis was so advanced that surgery was the only option left. In what was called a transatrial finger commissarotomy, Sautar entered the heart through the left atrium before putting his index finger through the stenosed valve to break up the adhesions keeping the leaflets bound together. Sautar elected to not use a knife as that would cause severe regurgitation. After the surgery, the quality of life of Sautar's patient improved and she survived for several years, dying of a cerebral embolism. Interestingly, this surgery was the only mitral valve operation Sautar performed. In a letter, he would explain to fellow mitral valve pioneer Dwight Harkin, who we'll soon cover, that, quote, I did not repeat the operation because I could not get another case. Although my patient made an uninterrupted recovery, the physicians declared that it was all nonsense and, in fact, the operation was unjustifiable, end quote. Sautar had the prudence to choose a transatrial approach and use blunt dissection, representing a significant advance over Cutler's more dangerous approaches. Nonetheless, general aversion to change meant that, after Cutler called for a moratorium of mitral valve surgery in 1929, there was no significant advance to mitral valve surgery until after World War II. In fact, Sautar would note that, quote, it is of no use to be ahead of one's time, end quote. So let's fast forward to Charles Bailey and Dwight Harkin, two surgical giants who revived surgery for mitral stenosis. Both were born in 1910 and both died in 1993. Let's start with Harkin. Born and raised in Iowa, Dwight Harkin went on to study at Harvard for both his undergraduate and medical studies. Harkin began his surgical career at New York's renowned Bellevue Hospital, but his interest in cardiac surgery truly began when studying with British thoracic surgeon Tudor Edwards. Most of his practical experience, nonetheless, would come from serving in the U.S. Army during World War II. Lieutenant Colonel Harkin could experiment with new surgical techniques that, without the urgency and steady stream of severely injured patients, would never otherwise be possible. By necessity, Harkin had to operate in the thoracic cavity to remove bullets and shrapnel. In an age prior to the heart-lung machine, Harkin would cut open the heart or vessel, insert his finger, and remove the shrapnel. Given this seemingly primitive technique, it may come as a surprise to you that of his 134 patients who had shrapnel in and around the heart in great vessels, there was not a single death. This included 13 soldiers with shrapnel inside their heart chambers. On D-Day, the great Allied invasion of Normandy, cardiac surgical history was being made as Harkin removed intracardiac shrapnel for the first time. At least one author attributes Harkin's stunning success on the battlefield to his years in the Harvard labs, working with dogs' mitral valves. Harkin was trying to create a model of valvular vegetation, which is growths caused by infections on the valves, and found that inserting a dirty safety pin did the trick. 
Harkin would spend hours perfecting how to remove the pin from the heart without the dog dying. A skill that perhaps translated to removing shrapnel in a war zone. With all his accrued practical understanding, Harkin commented that, quote, We discovered that the heart wasn't such a mysterious and untouchable thing after all, end quote. After a brief stint at Tufts, Harkin returned to Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston, taking the title of Professor of Surgery and an interest in mitral stenosis from his mentor, Elliot Cutler. Cutler's influence on Harkin was vast, as Harkin maintained that to treat mitral stenosis, you had to create regurgitation. Still, Harkin improved on Cutler's technique by resolving to preserve the anterior leaflet and excise the posterior leaflet to only cause selective insufficiency. Furthermore, Harkin initially avoided a transatrial approach, remembering Cutler's warning to avoid the tissue-thin left atrial wall. As a result, when Harkin performed his first operation on a stenotic mitral valve in March of 1947, he inserted his valvulotome through the patient's pulmonary vein to access the valve. This patient died shortly thereafter of pulmonary edema. Harkin then relented and used a transatrial approach to access the stenosed mitral valve with his valvulotome, this first time being on June 16th of 1948. This is where Dr. Bailey comes in. Inspired by Henry Sautar, Bailey had done his first successful transatrial finger commissarotomy a few days prior, beating Harkin to the punch. Before we delve further into the Harkin-Bailey rivalry, let's take a moment to meet Dr. Bailey. Charles Bailey grew up in New Jersey, and as a teenager, he saw his 42-year-old father die of mitral stenosis, quote, coughing blood into a basin as my mother tried to soothe him, end quote. That experience and his mother's hope that Bailey rise above their impoverished circumstances led him to pursue medicine and more specifically dedicate himself to solving valvular disorders. Going to Rutgers for college in Hanneman in Pennsylvania for medical school, Bailey eventually landed as a lecturer at Hanneman where he began his experiments in dogs and autopsy patients. Bailey was quite the risk taker. He attempted his first transatrial finger commissarotomy in November of 1945, but the sutures tore out of the fragile atrial wall, leading to the patient hemorrhaging and dying on the table. Bailey did not even have a chance to maneuver his finger to the valve. Bailey would try again in June of 1946 in a 29-year-old female whose mitral stenosis was so hopeless that surgery was the only option left. Sensing a pattern here with mitral valve surgery? At one point during the operation, the patient's blood pressure was 60 over 55 millimeters of mercury, which is very low, and Bailey wanted to abandon the procedure. But the woman's physicians requested Bailey do at least something for her stenosis, or she would pass away from the surgery itself. Bailey tried to use a punching tool the size of a pencil to open up the mitral valve, but when that failed, Bailey put his index finger through the patient's valve, separating the commissures. The patient's condition would improve throughout the procedure, but she unfortunately died 48 hours after the surgery. Ironically, Bailey had not separated the mitral valve enough, and the blood clots had actually, quote, reduced the effective mitral valve opening to probably a smaller size than that existing at the time of the operation, end quote. These two failures gave Bailey the nickname of the butcher, and he was banned from doing further operations at Hanneman. Innovators are not always treated well by their contemporaries, especially when they fail. But Bailey was persistent. He made his third attempt at Memorial Hospital in nearby Delaware. While the surgery was a technical success, the patient died yet again, this time from an overprescription of anticoagulants. Not having given anticoagulants to his second patient, Bailey had swung a little too far in the opposite direction. Memorial Hospital similarly banned Butcher Bailey, but he still did not give up on surgically relieving mitral stenosis. Knowing that he was running against the clock as his bad reputation spread, he scheduled two operations in one day at the only two local hospitals that he still had privileges at. Bailey himself pessimistically admitted that, quote, if the operations were done at different hospitals, the probability was great that news of a mortality during the first operation would not reach the second hospital in time to interrupt the performance of the later procedure, end quote. The day started at Philadelphia General Hospital, but was mired with difficulties. The anesthetist had trouble ensuring the patient had sufficient oxygenation. 
the lungs were wholly adhered to other thoracic structures, and just touching the heart caused it to beat irregularly. The patient even went into cardiac arrest multiple times, each time being revived with Bailey's cardiac massages. Bailey wanted to stop the procedure, but, like before, the patient's physician urged him to continue because there was no hope for the patient otherwise. Bailey agreed to continue operating, but interestingly stipulated that the physician must first declare his patient dead. With liability reduced and that legal matter taken care of, Bailey proceeded, but the patient passed away anyway as he anticipated. With Bailey now batting 0 for 4, he went to Episcopal Hospital to shoot his shot one last time. Fail here and he can kiss his career goodbye. Succeed and perhaps all other sins can be forgiven. Entering the patient's atrium, he first used a special hook knife to separate the stenosed leaflets from one another before using his finger to break up any residual fibrous connections. The operation went without a hitch, and the patient survived. More than that, she was up and about within three days of surgery, a remarkable recovery. In fact, a week after her operation, Bailey and his patient would travel a thousand miles to Chicago to present at the American College of Chest Physicians pushing the envelope of what cardiac surgery could accomplish. On June 10th of 1948, when Bailey had this first victory, Harkin had not had a single success. But as mentioned, six days after Bailey's success, Harkin also had a patient who survived and whose mitral stenosis was relieved. Disappointed that he had not been the first to find success, Harkin resolved to publish his findings first. Through his friendship with the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, Harkin got his findings published six months before Bailey did, and in a more prestigious journal. Bailey would be published in Diseases of the Chest. That being said, Bailey would ultimately make the cover of Time magazine, not Harkin. Regardless of the debate over which surgeon really brought mitral valve surgery back into the mainstream, the implications for cardiac surgery were vast. Over time, mortality rates for this surgery dropped dramatically. Harkin and fellow surgeon Harrison Black reported that out of 1,000 operations performed between 1949 and 1956, they had a less than 1% perioperative mortality rate. Eventually, Bailey and Harkin's finger commissarotomy would be replaced with balloon valvuloplasty, first introduced for mitral valve stenosis by Japanese surgeon Kanji Anui in 1982. To quickly summarize the procedure, through a vein in the leg, initially the saphenous vein but currently the femoral vein, a catheter is passed up through the cardiovascular system across the transatrial septum, which is the wall separating the right and left atria, and into the left atrium to find the stenosed mitral valve. Upon arriving there, the balloon inflates and opens up the narrowed valve. Such transcatheter approaches have become increasingly popular in alleviating valvular stenosis because they are much less invasive and allow for fast recovery, quite a ways away from Sautar's finger blindly opening up the valve. We've now covered the history of surgery for mitral stenosis, so let's shift our focus to relieving mitral insufficiency, or, in other words, mitral regurgitation. Now, for those of you that need to break this episode into two parts, this would be a good place to pause. But make sure you come back, as there's lots more good stuff on the mitral valve still ahead, those powering through, let's continue. Regurgitation is a much more tricky problem to solve than stenosis, which meant that, prior to the invention of cardiopulmonary bypass by John Gibbon in 1953, see podcast 63, surgery for regurgitation was impossible. But in 1956, cardiac surgery giant Walt Lillehei at the University of Minnesota was the first to successfully repair mitral regurgitation. As we have discussed Lillehei extensively in many other episodes, we'll not spend too much time on his biography. But to briefly summarize, Lillehei was a true Minnesotan. Being born in Minneapolis, he received his education and training at the University of Minnesota and spent most of his career as an attending at Minnesota. His contributions to cardiac surgery are perhaps unparalleled, including pioneering surgical repairs for congenital defects and introducing bubble oxygenation for cardiopulmonary bypass as well as the first wearable pacemaker. In August of 1956, Lilahai made history by repairing a 15-year-old boy's regurgitant mitral valve with a surgery called annuloplasty. 
silk sutures were used to tighten the annulus or ring around the valve, tying them to a polyvinyl sponge for support. Lillehei reported on four such cases in a 1957 paper that showed that, despite the slight creation of stenosis, these patients' conditions were remarkably improved. Cardiac surgeon Earl Kay would further improve on Lillehei's technique, developing a multipoint fixation technique where a circular piece of Teflon would be sutured onto the mitral annulus, taking larger bites of the annulus, i.e. keeping the sutures further apart, than the Teflon in order to decrease the valve size. You may know the heat and cold resistant Teflon from it being the non-stick coating of your pots and pans, but as a biologically inert and durable material, it also has served an important role in medical devices and technology. But back to Kay though. His technique directly foreshadowed the annuloplasty ring that Alain Carpentier would create, but more on that later. Other techniques followed the Lehigh's, but the majority were plagued with high failure rates because, in trying to relieve regurgitation, severe stenosis was created. In fact, Kay wrote how, quote, many ingenious closed or blind techniques have been devised and enthusiastically advocated in the recent past for the surgical correction of mitral regurgitation. Invariably, success was transitory, and such operations were short-lived, On top of these failures, repair of the regurgitant valve was not always possible. In cases of severe regurgitation, replacing the valve itself was the only option. Enter Nina Brownwald. Born and educated in New York, Brownwald was a pioneering figure, being an incredible innovator as well as the first woman to be certified by the American Board of Cardiothoracic Surgery. After she completed a fellowship with Charles Huffnagel, the inventor of the first artificial heart valve, Brownwald designed the first successfully implanted artificial mitral valve while working at the National Institute of Health. After experimenting with the surgical technique in dozens of dogs, she replaced the regurgitant mitral valve of a 16-year-old girl in early 1960. While the patient's heart murmur had clearly reduced, the patient became oliguric, meaning she had dramatically reduced urine output, and hyperkalemic, meaning she had too high blood potassium levels. Ever wonder why it's called hyperkalemia, not hyperpotassemia, which is also a real word? Kalium is the Latin word for potassium, hence its symbol on the periodic table, the letter K. Kalium is also related to the word alkali, and potassium is one of the alkali metals. And finally, the name potassium comes from the word potash, which refers to the early method of extracting potassium salts. In a pot, the ash of burnt wood or leaves is mixed with water and then heated to evaporate the water, leaving potassium salts. This name was given by Humphrey Davy, who first isolated the element via electrolysis in 1807. And just to bring us all the way back around to surgery, Davy was also famous for discovering the anesthetic properties of nitrous oxide, a.k.a. laughing gas. <laughs> back to our young patient. As a result of complications from surgery, she passed away at 60 hours post-op. Brownwald's second case, however, proved to be more successful. In a 44-year-old woman, Brownwald made a left atriotomy and saw the heavily scarred anterior leaflet and the immobile posterior leaflet. She excised these two leaflets of the mitral valve before connecting the artificial valve's cordae to the native papillary muscle, going through the left ventricle to do so. Finally, the artificial valve was sutured to the annulus, carefully aligning the leaflets and commissures to mimic a healthy mitral valve. The patient went on to do well clinically for several months thereafter, further pushing the boundaries of what surgeons could do for the mitral valve. Brownwald's artificial valve was never made widely available, so let's take some time to look at Albert Starr and Lowell Edwards, whose Starr Edwards valve was the first commercially available valve. Albert Starr was born in 1926 in New York City and went on to attend college and medical school at Columbia University. After his internship at Hopkins, Starr served in a MASH, or Mobile Army Surgical Hospital, unit in Korea during the war, doing a thousand laparotomies in one year alone as the head of the abdominal team. Fun fact about the Korean War, it has technically never ended because fighting stopped with a ceasefire and not a peace treaty. In any case, 
Coming back to the States, Starr finished his training in thoracic surgery in New York before being recruited to move across the country to the University of Oregon. There he met Edwards, a mechanical engineer 28 years his senior. A native of Oregon, Edwards grew up climbing electrical poles and repairing power lines for his dad's business. After getting a degree in electrical engineering from Oregon State, he built his skills as an inventor in New York before returning to Oregon as the chief engineer at a pump company. That experience led him to create a water pump that debarked trees, as well as a high-altitude booster pump used in a majority of American aircraft during World War II, as high as 85% at one point. By the time he retired, Edwards had patented over 60 of his inventions. So now that we know a bit of Starr's and Edwards' histories, let's focus on their field-changing partnership. Eleven years after retiring, Edwards met Starr and suggested that they work together to make a totally artificial heart. Needless to say, Edwards was ahead of his time, and Starr suggested they start smaller and focus on a valve. Over a period of two years, Edwards would make prototypes of artificial valves that Starr would test in dogs. The first prototype was a circular frame of Teflon with two sialastic, or silicon rubber, flaps that served as leaflets. But this prototype inevitably caused a lot of blood clots. Clotting, or thrombosis, was the perennial problem for artificial valves, including Brownwald's. The team was trying to mimic nature and create an authentic replica. But Starr commented that, quote, let's make a valve that works and not worry about its looks, end quote. Edwards went back to the drawing board and, seeing a paper published in 1958 by Mayo Clinic surgeon Henry Ellis and scientist Arthur Bulbillion of a caged ball prosthesis, he had a light bulb moment. Ellis and Bulbillion could not resolve the thrombus problem with their less-than-optimal design, but Edwards and Starr felt that they could. The valve was basically a silastic ball in a metal cage. When the heart contracts, the blood pressure forces the ball to the top of its cage, allowing blood to pass. When the heart relaxes, the ball rests at the bottom of its cage and prevents backward blood flow. The idea was that, with the ball continually moving, any clot that formed would be removed as fast as it was made. The valve would essentially clean itself. However, testing these valves in dogs, the thrombus issue persisted as the clot would start on the mitral annulus itself before spreading to the prosthetic valve, blocking the valve within a few days. If used, anticoagulants would simply hasten the dog's death by causing hemorrhaging because the dog did not have enough time to recover from the surgery. Starr and Edwards would not be deterred, though, and added a silastic shield to the annulus. While not eliminating the thrombus problem, it slowed down clot formation long enough so that anticoagulants could be started without causing hemorrhaging. In dogs, this shielded valve had a remarkable 80% survival rate. Ironically, though, this shield was left out in human versions of the valve because humans were less likely to form clots than dogs were, and the non-shielded valve was much quicker to implant than the shielded one. Time is money, but in heart surgery, it is also life. Less time on cardiopulmonary bypass generally translates to better outcomes. Starr's first attempt at implanting the valve in a human was in a 33-year-old woman who had previously had a commissurotomy done, as well as a single leaflet replacement. Regardless, the patient had severe mitral regurgitation and congestive heart failure, so mitral valve replacement was undertaken. While the operation was rather uneventful, the patient died 10 hours post-op because an air embolism in her right pulmonary vein entered her brain and caused a stroke. It was a heart-wrenching lesson to learn for Starr, but the support of Chief of Cardiology Dr. Herbert Griswold ensured that their efforts to successfully implant a mitral valve in a human patient would not end here. Having a supportive chief is often an important key to success. About a month later, on September 21st of 1960, Starr tried again and implanted the Starr Edwards valve into patient Philip Admason. Admason had a completely calcified mitral valve, resulting in stenosis primarily, but also insufficiency. Remember that replacement can alleviate both stenosis and insufficiency alike. Starr made history with Admason because he was the first patient who had a valve replaced and survived for more than three months. In fact, Admason would survive for 15 years after the surgery, dying for reasons unrelated to his heart. In 1961, Starr reported on his series of eight patients who had the Starr Edwards valve implanted, showing that the six who survived all demonstrated 
drastic improvement in their condition. Before the surgery, these patients were extremely ill, with Edwards noting that, quote, patients were ready to die or we weren't allowed to work on them, end quote. However, afterward, these patients had their heart size decrease and murmur disappear, with at least one being able to run upstairs when climbing them was previously impossible. People came from all over the world to get their mitral valve replaced by Star. Within five years, Star and his team got the operative mortality rate down from 50% to 7%. Edwards would help make the Star Edwards valve a global product, founding Edwards Laboratory, the ancestor of the current medtech company Edwards Life Sciences, and mass-produced tens of thousands of these valves. But the story of surgery for mitral regurgitation does not end there. For mitral valve replacement, it was common practice to cut the native papillary muscles and chordae tendony. Surgeons were concerned that the prosthetic would malfunction if they did not. As more and more patients had valve replacement surgery to alleviate mitral regurgitation, some surgeons began to see that these patients would come back to the hospital after 6 to 12 months with their mitral valve working fine, but with cardiomyopathy and congestive heart failure. Now, our hearts are normally football-shaped, American football, not the otherwise global meaning. But these patients' hearts, interestingly, became basketball-shaped. Surgeons began explaining this phenomenon with the pop-off theory. Basically, they began saying that a regurgitant mitral valve was a necessary evil for patients with congestive heart failure. In other words, backward blood flow into the left atrium was needed to help ease the stress placed on these patients' hearts. Suddenly, to replace or repair a regurgitant mitral valve became taboo. Cardiac surgeons were hesitant to do this operation, and cardiologists refused to refer, or at least delayed referring their patients, for such an operation. Unfortunately, this theory was dead wrong. Slightly distasteful pun intended. The problem was that these surgeons were damaging the valvular anatomy by cutting the papillary muscles and chordae. That was what was causing the heart failure and cardiomyopathy. In 1964, our old friend Lillehei reported on this finding. In 13 dogs and 14 patients, Lillehei's group preserved the papillary muscles and chordae tendony upon inserting the Star Edwards valve. This study not only showed that you could preserve the subvalvular anatomy in a mitral valve replacement without compromising the prosthetic, but also suggested that preserving the papillary muscles and chordae tendony helps to avoid what Lillehei called low cardiac output syndrome. Lillehei's study would not be enough to overcome the reluctance to treat mitral regurgitation, however. That would continue until the 1980s, partly due to support for the pop-off theory from respected experts and conflicting experimental results. But in 1986, Craig Miller's group would provide the evidence to dismantle this erroneous pop-off theory. Born in 1946 in San Francisco, Miller spent his teenage years in rural Northern California before going to Dartmouth for three years and finishing his bachelor's and medical degrees at Stanford. After training under Norman Shumway, the first to do a successful adult heart transplant in the U.S., Miller became an attending at Stanford. There, Miller experimentally demonstrated that preserving the papillary muscles and chordae was vital to keeping the ventricle functioning properly. What distinguished this study from the others that had similar conclusions was that Miller's group analyzed the immediate consequences of cutting the chordae tendinae. They used a micro-manometer to measure left ventricular pressure in real time, both before and after severing the chordae. Reporting on the, quote, profound deterioration of global left ventricular performance, end quote, Miller's findings helped to bring mitral regurgitation repair back into everyday practice. Such a profound reversal. The final chapter in the history of the mitral valve that we will cover today in part because we are getting dangerously close to the present for a history of surgery podcast, lies in French surgeon Alain Carpentier. Born in 1933 in Toulouse, France, Carpentier obtained his MD and PhD from the University of Paris and worked for most of his life at Hospital Brousset. After doing the first successful xenograft replacement of the aortic valve in 1965, Carpentier successfully replaced a mitral valve with a biological valve in 1967. Interestingly enough, Carpentier used a porcine, or pig, aortic valve xenograft in the mitral position. While this was a significant step forward in mitral valve replacement, 
these first implanted biologic valves had a high failure rate. Carpentier found that these valves often became heavily calcified and thus lost their function within 10 years. More work would need to be done before biologic valves would rise to the same prominence as mechanical valves. Another one of Carpentier's advances was his development of a prosthetic annuloplasty ring in 1968. To give context, the, the hospital Brousset would do 2,000 cardiovascular operations per year, with about seven to nine such operations per day, and about half of all cardiovascular operations were valve-related. As a result, replacing the valve was often off the table because Carpentier noted, quote, the broad geographic origin of our patients, some coming from areas where adequate anticoagulation is not possible, the young age of many of them, and the specific risks associated with anticoagulation, end quote, would make it impossible to do this in these patients. As a result, Carpentier came up with the metal annuloplasty ring to be placed around the mitral valve annulus to remodel or restore the shape of the valve in the case of regurgitation. The ring would prevent further dilation while not interfering with the function and motion of the leaflets themselves. The annuloplasty ring was so impactful because it made valvular reconstruction simple, predictable, and reproducible instead of the haphazard and technical difficulty of previous repair techniques. By 1976, there had been 500 mitral valve reconstructions done with the annuloplasty ring at Hospital Brousset, and this operation had a 90% survival rate six years out. If the biologic valve and the annuloplasty ring were not enough, in 1983, Carpentier gave what is now a classic lecture called the French Correction at the 63rd Annual Meeting of the American Association for Thoracic Surgery. Not only did this paper lay out a standardized classification system of mitral pathologies so that cardiac surgeons around the world now had a common language, i.e. normal leaflet prolapse or restricted leaflet motion, but also it laid out a reproducible strategy to repair mitral valve regurgitation, emphasizing the importance of quadrangular resection and an annuloplasty ring. This lecture was so important because it described the optimal technique for any given mitral regurgitation pathology and thus encouraged surgeons worldwide to do mitral valve surgery. Even today, Carpentier's reconstruction is the gold standard for mitral valve surgery. Who knows where mitral valve surgery will go next? Before we end this episode, and I know it's a long one, let's take a moment to reflect on the earliest patients that underwent valve surgery so many of whom did not survive the operation. While their names may be essentially forgotten, their sacrifice will live on in all the current and future patients who've had their lives improved and even saved by successful mitral valve surgery. Imagine the courage and hope that you would need to agree to go under the knife in the rare chance that you will be the first to survive. Incredible. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Who knows what episode will be next? I'm working on a few. But in the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.